Do you ever feel like you're going backwards when you want it to be going forwards? Apparently that's what happened to this car. There is a hill off to the right of the picture there, and that's how things ended up. Going backwards when you want it to go forwards. That kind of thing can happen to us. It might be in a car, although I don't think there was anyone in this car, but it can happen more generally in life to us. We've probably all had that feeling that we're going backwards even sometimes when we're making a great effort to go forwards in some way. We find ourselves going in the opposite direction from the one we want to go. And that experience of going backwards is what we're going to see in our Bible passage this morning. We're going through First and Second Kings. And previous to First and Second Kings, Israel as a people had been moving forward for many generations. They'd moved forward out of their slavery in Egypt. They'd moved forward into the promised land of Canaan. During the reign of King David, the tribes of Israel had moved forward by uniting themselves under one king. During the reign of David's son, Solomon, the united nation of Israel rose to great heights of prosperity and influence in the world. We've seen that in the beginning of 1 Kings. But in more recent weeks, we've seen how the kingdom divided after Solomon's death. That was the legacy of Solomon's disobedience to God. We saw how God tore ten of the tribes away from Solomon's son Rehoboam. And those northern tribes gave their allegiance to Jeroboam. Rehoboam was left with only the southern part of the kingdom, which is now referred to as Judah. But as we read on in Kings, two things become clear to us. First, it becomes clear that we're still dealing with the story of one people. Yes, they're now politically divided. There's a border cutting the nation in two. There's regular fighting between the two halves. But from the Bible's point of view and from God's point of view, north and south are still one people. And the second thing that becomes clear is that this people is going backwards. Yes, time keeps moving on, history goes on, dozens of kings come and go, battles are fought, politics continues, but as year after year passes, Israel and Judah are moving backwards, not forwards. They might sign new trade agreements, they might start using new technology, some years might be fairly good. But whatever bright moments there are along the way, the path this people is on is leading them backwards, not forwards. And as we're shown that this morning, we'll try to see also how this applies to us and the situation that we live in. So turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 14, and we'll look together at a people going backwards. If you're using one of the blue church Bibles, that's page 354. And in the larger print Bibles, 545. 
First Kings 14, and we'll read the whole of this chapter. At that time, Abijah, son of Jeroboam, became ill. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Go, disguise yourself so that you won't be recognized as the wife of Jeroboam. Then go to Shiloh. Ahijah the prophet is there, the one who told me I would be king over this people. Take ten loaves of bread with you, some cakes and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what will happen to the boy. So Jeroboam's wife did what he said and went to Ahijah's house in Shiloh. Now Ahijah could not see. His sight was gone because of his age. But the Lord had told Ahijah, Jeroboam's wife is coming to ask you about her son, for he is ill. And you are to give her such and such an answer. When she arrives, she will pretend to be someone else. So when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why this pretense? I have been sent to you with bad news. Go, tell Jeroboam that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I raised you up from among the people and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. But you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commands and followed me with all his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You have aroused my anger and turned your back on me. Because of this, I am going to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every last meal in Israel, slave or free. I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as one burns dung until it is all gone. Dogs will eat those belonging to Jeroboam who die in the city. And the birds will feed on those who die in the country. The Lord has spoken. As for you, go back home. When you set foot in your city, the boy will die. All Israel will mourn for him and bury him. He is the only one belonging to Jeroboam who will be buried. Because he is the only one in the house of Jeroboam in whom the Lord, the God of Israel, has found anything good. The Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who will cut off the family of Jeroboam. Even now, this is beginning to happen. And the Lord will strike Israel so that it will be like a reed swaying in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land that he gave to their ancestors and scatter them beyond the river Euphrates because they aroused the Lord's anger by making Asherah poles. And he will give Israel up because of the sins Jeroboam has committed and he has caused Israel to commit. Then Jeroboam's wife got up and laughed and went to Terzah. As soon as she stepped over the threshold of the house, the boy died. They buried him and all Israel mourned for him as the Lord had said through his servant, the prophet Ahijah. The other events of Jeroboam's reign, his wars and how he ruled, are written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel. He reigned for 22 years and then rested with his ancestors. And Nadab, his son, succeeded him as king. Rehoboam, son of Solomon, was king in Judah. He was 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 17 years in Jerusalem, the city the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel in which to put his name. 
His mother's name was Nama. She was an Ammonite. Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger more than those who were before them had done. They also set up for themselves high places, sacred stones, and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. There were even male shrine prostitutes in the land. The people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem. He carried off the treasures of the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace. He took everything, including all the gold shields Solomon had made. So King Rehoboam made bronze shields to replace them and assigned these to the commanders of the guard on duty at the entrance to the royal palace. Whenever the king went to the Lord's temple, the guards bore the shields, and afterwards they returned them to the guard room. As for the other events of Rehoboam's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? There was continual warfare between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And Rehoboam rested with his ancestors and was buried with them in the city of David. His mother's name was Nama. She was an Ammonite. And Abijah, his son, succeeded him as king. This is God's word. I said a few moments ago, even though we're now dealing with a divided kingdom... The writer of Kings still presents this as the history of one people. And we can see that here. We're told, first of all, about Jeroboam in the north and then Rehoboam in the south. And that's how things are going to be presented from now on. For a few chapters, the focus might be on the north, but then we'll catch up with what's been going on in the south. And here we begin by focusing on Jeroboam. Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen the background to this. God had given Jeroboam a phenomenal opportunity. He handed him ten tribes to rule. And God gave Jeroboam this promise. If you do whatever I command you, and walk in obedience to me, and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. God said, just obey me. But what did Jeroboam do? Well, what we've seen is he did the opposite. He created his own gods, two golden calves. And he created his own altars, his own priesthood, and his own calendar of religious festivals. All of it in defiance of God's decrees and commands. Last week, we saw how in his mercy, God sent a message to Jeroboam, warning him that his false religion was going to be destroyed, giving Jeroboam an opportunity to turn back to God. But chapter 13 ended with these words. Even after this, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways, but once more appointed priests for the high places from all sorts of people. Anyone who wanted to become a, anyone who wanted to become a priest, he consecrated for the high places. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and its destruction from the face of the earth. 
Jeroboam ignores the chance to abandon his evil ways. He carries on just as he had been. That's the context in which we're told in verse 1 of chapter 14, at that time Abijah, son of Jeroboam, became ill. This is big news. It's big news because every king needs a successor. And now Jeroboam's successor has become ill. Now what we would expect Jeroboam to do, considering what we've seen in the last few weeks, is to go and consult with his golden calves, right? And his priests. Jeroboam has invested his life in this new religion of his. Surely, that's where he'll turn to for help. But that is not where he turns. Look again at verse 2. Jeroboam said to his wife, Go, disguise yourself so that you won't be recognized as the wife of Jeroboam. Then go to Shiloh. Ahijah the prophet is there, the one who told me I would be king over this people. Take ten loaves of bread with you, some cakes and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what will happen to the boy. That's remarkable. By this point in time, Jeroboam has either learned by experience that his new religion can't help him at all, or he's known that all along. Either way, Jeroboam knows who does have insight and power. The Lord, the one who gave him the kingdom in the first place. Jeroboam might be disobeying and resisting God, but he knows the Lord has power over his son's life. So he sends his wife to visit Ahijah, the prophet of the Lord. Dale Ralph Davis says, Jeroboam turned a deaf ear to the word of the Lord in chapter 13. Yet now when the dark days come, he seeks what he had despised. Jeroboam wants the help of the word in the emergencies of life, but not the rule of the word over the course of his life. He wants the word of God for his crisis, but not for his routine or practice. He craves light in his trouble, but not on his path. That means Jeroboam is like many, many people today. People who want God when they're in trouble to bail them out of their trouble, but they wouldn't dream of living their lives for God. They wouldn't dream of letting his word direct their lives. We might wonder, why doesn't Jeroboam go himself to see Ahijah? Why does he send his wife instead? Well, I can't prove this, but I would guess Jeroboam cannot bear to face Ahijah. In Northern Ireland, we'd say he doesn't have the neck on him to go to Ahijah. Remember, it was through Ahijah that God gave Jeroboam a kingdom. I think Jeroboam sends his wife to the prophet because he's too embarrassed to go himself. After the way he has misused God's gift. And we discover here it's been a long time since Jeroboam has had any contact with Ahijah. We know that because Jeroboam is not aware that Ahijah is blind these days. We're told in verse 4 that Ahijah can't see anymore, but in verse 2, 
Jeroboam tells his wife to disguise herself so that Ahijah won't recognize her. That tells us the two men have not met in a long time. But leaving aside Ahijah's blindness, Jeroboam's instruction to his wife just sums up the ridiculous way that Jeroboam lives his life. He knows Ahijah is a true prophet of God. He knows that through God's power, Ahijah will have insight into his son's illness. But Jeroboam still thinks a simple disguise will fool God's prophet. He thinks the one who can see across the miles and know his son's situation is going to be fooled because his wife is wearing a fake mustache or whatever way it is that she's disguised herself. Jeroboam's logic has no logic at all. His way of living makes no sense. That's another way he's like many people today. They cry out to God when they're in trouble, hoping he will have the insight and the power to help them. And yet they imagine they can hide their sin and their defiance from him. They imagine he isn't going to notice or care about that. It's no different from asking God to use his power to heal your son while thinking God is so limited he cannot recognize you behind your fake mustache. Foolishness of Jeroboam's life is summed up in that little detail. He's been given every reason to believe in God's power. He's seen it, but he still thinks he can get the better of God. And now God is going to reveal the consequences of that. When Jeroboam's wife arrives to see Ahijah, God has already prepared the old prophet. He's given him a message. Verse 6. When Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why this pretense? I have been sent to you with bad news. Notice, Jeroboam's wife thought she was taking the initiative. But Ahijah says, I have been sent to you. God is the one in the driving seat. And the news is bad. Ahijah recalls the amazing opportunity God has given Jeroboam. God gave him a kingdom. All he had to do was obey. But, verse 9, you have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You have aroused my anger and turned your back on me. Because of this, I am going to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every last meal in Israel, slave or free. I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as one burns dung until it is all gone. Dogs will eat those belonging to Jeroboam who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. The Lord has spoken. In other words, God says, you thought you could defy me and still build a great kingdom for yourself. But Jeroboam, it's all going to end pathetically. You built idols of metal and altars of stone. But the whole thing is going to burn up like dung, God says. 
You wanted a dynasty, but your family is not even going to have tombs. They will have no resting place. Their bodies will lie in the open air as food for the dogs and the birds. That's the way it ends for those who try to build a life for themselves but live their lives in defiance of God. The life that they build burns up. Their achievements are eaten away. In Jeroboam's case, his wife is told, the proof of this, the proof this is going to happen, is that your son is going to die. His death will be the first fruit of your destruction. Verse 12. As for you, go back home. When you set foot in your city, the boy will die. All Israel will mourn for him and bury him. He is the only one belonging to Jeroboam who will be buried. Because he is the only one in the house of Jeroboam in whom the Lord, the God of Israel, has found anything good. One commentator says, The death of the child signals the death of the dynasty. But notice God does not say, I'm angry with your son. He says, he's the only one I'm pleased with. That's why I'm delivering him from this mess that's coming. He will have a burial. He'll be the last one of your house that does. God says to Jeroboam, your son's death is the beginning of the end for you. And not just for you, but for Israel too. In verse 14, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who will cut off the family of Jeroboam. Even now, this is beginning to happen. And the Lord will strike Israel so that it will be like a reed swaying in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land that he gave to their ancestors and scatter them beyond the river Euphrates because they aroused the Lord's anger by making Asherah poles. And he will give Israel up because of the sins Jeroboam has committed and has caused Israel to commit. We said at the beginning, this passage is about going backwards. And this gets right to the heart of it. Long ago, God brought Israel out of their exile in Egypt. He led them across the water of the Red Sea. And he brought them into this good land they're living in. But now God says that progress is going to unravel like a film being played in reverse. They will be uprooted from this good land and led into a new exile. This time it will be across the water off the Euphrates River. It's going to be several hundred years before that happens. But from now on, Israel is not going to progress. As time passes, they're only going to go backwards. From opportunity to exile. And the unraveling of Jeroboam's family is like a miniature version of Israel's unraveling. And that is a miniature version of humanity's unraveling. Think back for a moment to the Garden of Eden. We noticed last week Jeroboam's defiance of God's word 
echoed Adam and Eve's defiance of God's word. And the two situations connect again here. When Adam and Eve defied God, remember where they were at that time. They were in a place that's described as very good. That garden was a gift from God. It was a place for them to thrive. It was a place of limitless opportunity. If only they would obey. But when Adam and Eve chose to defy God, they didn't move forwards as they expected to greater achievement and greater fulfillment. No, Genesis tells us they went backwards. It tells us how they were exiled from the garden, condemned to conflict and to painful toil. Condemned to return to the dust God had lifted them from. And that backwards movement is still being played out today. Every day, men and women have opportunity to turn to God in obedience. To step off the path that Adam and Eve opened up. Every day, God says, turn to me and be saved. Turn to me and receive life in all its fullness. But every day that we refuse God's call, we are moving a day closer to exile. Not exile from a garden, not exile from a land, but exile from God's presence for eternity. According to the Bible, if your life is not given over to God, then your life is going backwards, not forwards. That's true. However successful things might seem right now. The north of Israel was not destroyed overnight. But God says here, that is where it's going. One day at a time. It's the same for every person who tries to shut God out. So if that's your situation, don't keep going backwards. Take the opportunity you have today. Admit that you've been defying God. Ask him to forgive you. And you can start moving forwards. Because in the end, our relationship with God is all that really matters. That comes across here when the writer of Kings sums up Jeroboam's life and reign. Look how he does it in verse 19. The other events of Jeroboam's reign, his wars, and how he ruled, are written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah, of Israel. He reigned for 22 years and then rested with his ancestors. When we first started looking at kings, we said the writer is not trying here to give us an exhaustive account of Israel's history. He's not trying to give us every little detail. For one thing, it would take a much bigger book to do that. He's covering hundreds of years. And anyway, that exhaustive recording of detail had already been done. We often come across references to more detailed history books the writer of Kings is making use of. Here he mentions the annals of the kings of Israel. 
Later we hear about the annals of the kings of Judah. And there are several other books mentioned in Kings. We don't have them today, but at the time they were there and they could be examined. It seems they were full records of events, year after year written down. And the writer of Kings has made use of them, but he's been selective. He's left out lots and lots. Because guided by God, he is giving us the most important bits of Israel and Judah's history. And here we get an insight into what is most important. Verse 19 says, if you want to read about Jeroboam's wars, if you want to read about how he ruled, you'll need to go to the library and look that stuff up. And we might say, but isn't that the stuff that's worth recording? Tell us about his political achievements. But the writer of Kings disagrees. He says you can look that up if you want, but what really matters is Jeroboam's relationship with God. Now that he's dead and gone, the other stuff is pretty insignificant. The writer of Kings says, I want us to consider the biggest issue of Jeroboam's life. He defied God. And by refusing to repent of that, he set his family on the path to destruction. He set all of Israel on the road to exile. And as we notice this, let's take it to heart ourselves. There are many details in each of our lives. Challenges that we face, defeats as well as victories, disappointments and joys, maybe achievements and awards. And at the time, those things can seem to be all-consuming for us. They can dominate our thoughts and our time. But the Bible wants us to see in the end our relationship with God is all that really matters. Regardless of how smooth our lives might seem, regardless of how many struggles we're facing, more significant than those things is whether we turn to God in repentance and begin to live for his glory. Or whether we keep going backwards until we end up in eternal exile from God. So whatever might seem to be the big issue in your life right now, please realize that your relationship with God will prove to be the truly big issue. No doubt all of us need to be concerned about health issues and exams and promotions and relationships and home improvements. Who we might marry, where our kids are going to go to school, where we're going to retire, when we're going to retire. Just like Jeroboam needed to be concerned about his wars and how he ruled. He couldn't avoid those things. But above all those things, we need to deal with the issue of our relationship with God. If we neglect that, we are just going backwards. No matter how much energy we spend trying to go forwards. That truth is confirmed for us 
when we get the summary of Rehoboam's reign. We're given less detail about that. But the message is that Judah in the south is going backwards as well. From glory to shame. Look at the regression set out in verses 21 to 24. Rehoboam, son of Solomon, was king in Judah. He was 41 years old when he became king. And he reigned for 17 years in Jerusalem. The city the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel in which to put his name. His mother's name was Nama. She was an Ammonite. Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger more than those who were before them had done. They also set up for themselves high places, sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. There were even male shrine prostitutes in the land. The people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Notice how this is put slightly differently from the last section. There, the focus was specifically on the personal disobedience of Jeroboam. Now certainly we were told that Israel followed his lead. But the focus there was on what Jeroboam did. Here, however, you'll notice Rehoboam is hardly mentioned. Instead, we are told Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The focus here is on collective defiance of God. Judah is moving from glory to shame. Generations before, God had driven out the nations who worshipped Asherah. Asherah was a female goddess. And the idea behind it all was that the male gods had sex with her and that would make the land fruitful every year. There would be good harvests. So those who worshipped Asherah, they did their best to encourage the gods along. They did that by having sex with sacred prostitutes at Asherah's temple. And the reference here to male shrine prostitutes may include females as well. Certainly both were available. But the point is that when God gave this land to the Israelites, he had driven out the nations who did this stuff. He chose Jerusalem to be his holy city. The place where the true God would be among his people. But the people of Judah have regressed from that glory. They've gone back to the sin and the detestable practices God had cleared away. No doubt as they were doing it, the people of Judah thought it was progress. Maybe they would have said they're just being inclusive. But in reality, they're going backwards. They're exchanging the glory of the immortal God for a mass of superstition and promiscuity and spiritual darkness. Last week, as we looked for connections between what's going on here and our own situation, I mentioned the current trend in our society to try and erase gender distinctions try and deny the facts of our biological sex. 
not just adults, but now children are being encouraged to rebel against their bodies, to make their bodies conform to whatever they want them to be. And if you've been following the news at all, you'll know this is all presented as progress. A week or so ago, Philip Schofield said the biblical view is medieval. And he was referring to the Bible's teaching that our sex at birth is a good God-given gift. That it's part of our glory as human beings to be male or female. But by calling that perspective medieval, Philip Schofield was ignoring the fact that as recently as 10 years ago, almost everyone, including Philip Schofield, would have assumed the biblical view without any argument at all. But now, it's medieval. Just like the Israelites, in trying to go forwards, our society is actually going backwards. From glory to shame. From a God-given vision of human dignity and the value of male and female, the goodness of it, back to the kind of confusion we read about here in the Old Testament. Among the Canaanites and the other nations that didn't know God. And the results of all this are not positive in our society. Last week I read a report saying that rates of depression and anxiety among children have increased by 70% in the last 25 years. The number of children reporting psychiatric conditions has doubled since 2009. In a 2016 survey, 91% of teachers reported an increase in mental illness among their pupils. This year, it's reported that suicides among teenagers has reached a 14-year high. Now we could argue that there's more awareness of these issues today than there used to be, and that's why the figures are rising. And I'm sure that's part of it. But it's certainly not the whole story about these figures. As our society rushes on with its ideas about progress, our children and teenagers are trying to tell us we're actually going backwards. As we go full steam ahead, away from the glory God gave us, the glory of maleness and femaleness, the glory of marriage as defined by God, the glory of God's vision for family, as we trample on all that, the feedback we're getting from the casualties of it all is that all this progress is not much fun for them. It doesn't feel very glorious to the people who live with it. They don't feel very liberated. It's leading to a mental and physical and spiritual mess. That's what happened in Judah as well. It's what always happens when a society turns its back on the glory God has given it. And we're given a little illustration here which sums it all up. 
Back in 1 Kings chapter 10, we heard in detail about the glory and splendor of Solomon's kingdom. And one of the details we were given back then was about a set of gold shields that Solomon had made. 500 of the things. Imagine the effect that had as they lined the walls of his palace, as the light bounced off those shields in every direction. It must have added to the sense of glory and splendor in the place. But here in chapter 14, we're told, Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem, and he carried off the treasures of the temple and the treasures of the royal palace. And out of all the things he could have mentioned, the writer of Kings chooses to mention those gold shields. Shishak took those with him as well. Why mention those shields particularly? I think it's because they illustrate what is going on spiritually in Judah. Verse 27 tells us Rehoboam made bronze shields to replace them. That is a very good picture of how Judah is going backwards in other ways too. Yes, life goes on. Politics continues. The guards still show up for work every day. But the glory of Judah is fading away. It's being replaced with shame. Just like the glory of those gold shields has been replaced with dull, grubby bronze. No matter how tall and proud those guards try to look every day, it's obvious to anyone watching that the glory of Judah is fading. And ultimately, Judah's shame will be much worse. Right now, it's the shame of walking around with second-rate shields. But in the end, it will be the shame of exile just like the north. When human beings defy God, things go backwards. But it doesn't have to be that way. And to see that, let's finish by remembering for a moment Jeroboam's son. Remember how his death signaled the beginning of the end for Israel. His death was the first fruit of that destruction. That was God's guarantee that death would come to all Israel. But remember, too, the strange way God put it. Back in verse 13, God said Jeroboam's son would die, not because he was worse than anyone else, but because he was better. He is the only one in the house of Jeroboam in whom the Lord, the God of Israel, has found anything good. And we noticed the point is that the son is going to be honored with a burial. No one else in the royal family is going to get that. God is taking this son to spare him the shame that's coming on the rest of Israel. But it's hard for us to read about this good son dying and not be reminded of God's own son. The New Testament tells us he was perfectly good. And yet he died not to escape from shame,
but to take our shame. God the Son was with his Father in heaven. He was above the experience of sin and death that we're all involved in. But in the person of Jesus Christ, God the Son voluntarily stepped down into our mess. He came as the only human being unstained by sin. The only one who God could look at and see goodness right to the core. And yet he died. The righteous for the unrighteous. To bring us to God. He didn't die as a sign that we're all going to die. His death wasn't the beginning of the end. It brought about a new beginning. Jesus rose from the dead and that opened up a way forward for you and me. The New Testament says Jesus rose as the first fruit of a whole harvest of resurrection. It's a harvest you and I can be part of. When we trust in Jesus' work on the cross, that it paid for our sins so we can be accepted by God, then our lives begin moving forwards from slavery into freedom, from the shame of our sin to the glory of God, from our experience of spiritual exile into a relationship with God that's alive from a life where opportunities slowly close down for us as we get older and weaker to a life of endless opportunity. That is what the Christian life is. He calls us forward every day to live for things that are eternal, to be part of a kingdom that will never end to work for glory that will never fade away. Nobody wants to go backwards. And the only way to truly move forwards is for our life to be joined with Jesus the Savior. So as we close, let's thank him for the life he makes available to us. And let's recommit ourselves to him for today and tomorrow as we sing, Who is there like you? And then in Christ alone, my hope is found.